Hey guys, welcome to the Short Term Show special episode series on one of my favorite markets of all time, the Texas Hill Country, Hook'em Horns. So guys, we're gonna do a 10 episode deep dive on investing in the Texas Hill Country. And we got 10 episodes here, I just said that, but make sure you hit that subscribe button because we are gonna do a quarterly update that you don't wanna miss, you guessed it, every quarter. And we do have some supplementary materials for y'all in addition to the content on this podcast. We've got those over at our website, theshorttermshop.com. So if you wanna know anything about purchase prices of properties in these markets, or we've got all of the income data, thanks to our friends over at AirDNA. And we've got all of that for you again at theshorttermshop.com. If you guys wanna buy a short-term rental with a short-term shop agent in the Texas Hill Country, email us at agents at theshorttermshop.com and we will hook you up. Or if you just wanna hang out with us more and talk about short-term rentals, there's a few ways you can do that. Uh, We've got a great Facebook group, same title as my book. It's called Short-Term Rental, Long-Term Wealth. Or if you wanna talk to us live on Zoom, we have a call every Thursday. You can sign up for at strquestions.com and we will catch you guys over there Hook them longhorns. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode in the Hill Country series of the Short Term Shop special episode series on the Hill Country. Uh, redundant, whatever. Uh, we Today we're talking about the contract process and we've got two really great Texas agents on here to help us do that. Uh, some familiar ones and some new ones. So Stacy, if you want to go ahead and introduce yourself first. Sure. I am Stacy Lancaster and I am the Texas Hill Country agent. Uh, for the short-term shop. And I am also a owner of three short-term rentals that I self-manage remotely. Amazing. And next we have Kimberly Moore. Kim, you want to introduce yourself real fast? Hey, I'm Kim Moore um, with short-term shop. I am an agent in Galveston and Crystal Beach, Texas, also known as the beach market for Mm -hmm. the Texas coast. Um, I am an agent and owner in multiple markets um, across the country, uh, short-term rentals, also backgrounding flips and just about everything else you can do with real estate at this point. So thanks for having me on, Avery. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So today we're just going to walk through the contract process from start to finish and how that goes in Texas and the contingencies and terms and all that, all those words kind of scare new investors. So we're just going to talk through what each of those things are as if you, I'm a buyer that we're taking through the contract process. So um, guys, we'll start with making an offer. So let's say we found me a property, the numbers make sense, and it's been on the market for, you know, 60 days. So it's not brand new to the market, but also hasn't been sitting around forever. We want to make an offer. So what are the typical terms? So terms of an offer, let's actually give some definitions about that first. So there's obviously the days to close, the price that you're offering. Is it financed? Is it cash? What's your earnest money deposit? What are the contingencies? So these are kind of all the words that people may or may not be familiar with. So if I'm making an offer, what's the first thing that you're, what are you asking me in terms of, or what are you suggesting in terms of what I want to offer? So I would say, you know, number one, we got to come up with what is the best offer price, um, you know, based on how long it's been on the market, the value of the property in comparable to with other properties, what the income it's going to do for you is. Um, and then the other things, like you mentioned, are close date, 
Uh, one thing that's, and I don't know how unique this is to Texas, but I know it's not in every state, is we have an option period. Um, so that option period gives you the right to terminate within a certain period of days for whatever reason. Um, so typically I will do a 10-day option period and there's a small, you pay a small um, non-refundable fee for that, but it gives you exclusive right to terminate you know, you've discovered the numbers don't work out or you just change your mind um, and you have that option to terminate without any cause whatsoever within that time frame. All right. So let's say we've got our offer number. I'm going to finance it. So we're not getting crazy with cash. So let's talk about what a typical earnest money deposit is in Texas. What's a typical earnest money deposit? I typically will say 1% um, of whatever the purchase price is. You know, if we're in a competitive situation, then I may recommend going higher than that, um, up to 2%. But Typically, I do 1%. Kim, I don't know if you're doing anything differently. Yeah, I mean, it really depends on the situation, how long the house has been on the market, what the seller's looking for. I see below 1% sometimes, and sometimes sellers will take that just because they want to get under contract. Um, so it really, you know, we'll try to gauge. I'll try to talk to the agent beforehand, you know, try to figure out, you know, what they're expecting. Um but, you know, it, 1% is very, very typical. Uh, if we can get lower than that, we always do. Um, but if you're in a competitive situation, you know, you want to put your best foot forward and show that you, you're committed. So sometimes it might be over that. All right. And let's also talk about, uh, is that refundable? Is that earnest money refundable? We, we'll get into the contingencies and when you get it back and when you don't in a second. But is it refundable in Texas? It is refundable. Um so yes, if it's within the option period, if you cancel within the option period, um, it's totally refundable. And there are some other circumstances in which it could be refundable as well, which we can talk about. Okay. So typically earnest money is refundable if you terminate under one of the contingencies of the contract. So we've talked about the option period. We'll get into the specifics of what an option period is in a minute. What are the other contingencies that you can terminate under that you might be able to get your earnest money back? So if um, you don't meet the qualifications for the financing um, that are put in the contract, then the earnest money is refundable. Um, if, let me think, if, if the, say the listing side doesn't deliver the survey um, within the specified period of time uh, within the contract, then earnest money is refundable. Oh, really? Um, yes. I think that's yeah. pretty Texas specific. I mean, they may do it in other states, but I haven't seen that outside of Texas personally, that right. if they don't give you the survey in time, then you can terminate and get your yeah. earnest money. Yeah. Same with seller's disclosure. If they don't provide the seller's disclosure, um, within a certain period of time, uh, you can terminate the contract um, then as well. Oh. Am I missing anything, Kim? No, I mean, those things typically don't happen because usually right. those agents know that. And so they're they're on it pretty quick. Yeah. You know, um, The financing piece in Texas is a little bit different where the appraisal, um, typically on our third-party financing addendum, it's an additional contingency. Um, so even if the uh, the buyer meets the criteria for loan approval, but the property doesn't appraise, there's an additional contingency there that the buyer could get their earnest money back. All right. And one thing that I want to clarify. So in Texas is earnest money. So let's say I'm in the option period. I find something I don't like on the inspection and I terminate. I'm within my option period. So I should get my earnest money back. 
Is it automatic? Does the title company just release that earnest money back to you or does the seller have to sign a release? They have to sign a release. Okay. That's something that I really wanted to hit on because I see a lot of people who will say, oh, well, I'm terminating under this contingency. So I ought to get my earnest money back. And sometimes they will terminate under a little bit of a gray area, or they might've, you know, done some real cute wording of things because they found another property that they wanted to get. Uh, Whatever the case, they assume that the earnest money just automatically comes back to them. But if a seller doesn't feel like signing an earnest money release, you don't get your earnest money back until that is signed, right? That's correct. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. So uh, guys, that's what I really wanted you guys to get out of listening to this whole little segment on earnest money is that a lot of people are like, oh, well, I'll just terminate on this and I'll get my earnest money back. It's not automatic in all states. If a seller has to sign a release, they could be in a bad mood that day and just not feel like signing it and you don't get your earnest money back. Now you can, what would have to happen is it would have to go through the whole judicial process in order for a judge to say, okay, yes, you terminated under this contingency. So you now do get your earnest money back, but only a judge can decide that. So I've seen people call and cuss out title companies for not just sending their earnest money back. And it's not up to them. It's not up to me. It's not up to the listing agent. It's up to the seller, unfortunately. And, you know, if they're, if they are not acting within the terms of the contract, then a judge only will be able to say, Hey, they you're giving them their earnest money back. But none of us can do that. All we can, the best we can do is try to convince the seller and explain to them that that's an expensive and annoying process. And why do you want to do that? But it's not automatic. And that's what I really wanted to make sure people understand that these are legally binding contracts. And if you're running around throwing down a bunch of earnest money with no intention of actually closing on the property, you could lose it. So yeah, keep that in mind. I actually had one of those about a year ago. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, clearly the property did not meet the specifications that were outlined in the contract, didn't appraise. It was a significant amount. Buyer and seller could not come to an agreement. Clearly the buyer was in the right to terminate. Um, Seller refused to sign the release of the earnest money, um, even against his attorney's advice, his real, his agent's advice. Everyone was telling me, like, you have to return the, the earnest money. It took him about a month to sign the document. So um, buyer was getting ready to get an attorney. I mean, it's just not something you want to deal with, but it's good to know that that, you know, could happen. Yeah. And I mean, there are times that I've gotten pissed off when I'm trying to sell something that I own and somebody's terminating on something stupid. And I'm like, well, I'm just going to put this in the back of my email inbox until next month and see, you know, I'm going to make this difficult for you. So it's petty and totally not something that anybody should be doing, but Uh, Just keep in mind when you're putting down earnest money that these things can happen. So you need to make sure that you are planning to follow through with the property and that you're acting in good faith and that we try to stay out of those gray areas as best we can. All right, moving on from earnest money, what's the typical closing period, like number of days to close that we put in just a standard contract? What what do we usually do? For a financing contract, I usually do 30 days. We can normally close within 30 days pretty easily. See the same, Kim? Yeah. I mean, I'll go a little bit further and sometimes I'll I'll talk to the lender up front um, just to, it depends on what type of loan they're doing. And if the lender's confident they can close in 30 days, you know, I'll do 30 days. If they're, if they're giving me that vibe of, oh, I might need a little bit more time, then I'll go for 45 and see what I can get. So- yeah. And I think now that, that the market slowed down a little bit, it's a little easier to 
navigate that. But I think all of us have a little bit of trauma <laughs> that resurfaces from 2021 <laughs> and 2022 about uh, days to close. Like sellers didn't want to go longer than 30 days. Lenders were having a hard time closing in 30 days back then because mm-hmm. appraisers were really difficult to get out. So it would end up being 45 and then sellers wouldn't want to extend because they've got a line of buyers out the door. So keep in mind where we are in the market cycle when you're making these offers and and when you're writing these contracts, because where you are can really affect where we are in the market cycle can really affect these terms. So keep that in mind. Uh, Okay. So we've gone over days to close. All right. So let's, let's talk about this option period. So what is the typical length of an option period? So typically it's seven to 10 days. Um, I have found that too many times if I do seven days, we end up extending. Um, So I will typically recommend we do 10 days just to, you know, make sure we have enough time for um, inspections and all the things that need to happen. Um, I don't know, Kim, if you do anything different. Yeah, I, I typically do 10 days. That's that's pretty average in our market. Um, if the property is really competitive and I know I'm in a multiple offer situation, you know, I might lower it just to show that, you know, we're really committed, we're ready to get on the ball and get things done, make a decision fast. But yeah, typically I try to get 10 days out of it. Okay. So that means you have 10 days to do all your inspections, to run all your numbers, to go walk the property if you haven't been there. And, and do all these things to make sure that you actually want to close on this property, right? That's yep. right. And something I want to highlight about Texas that's different in other markets. In Texas, it can be for any reason that you terminate the property. You could wake up and say, it's raining out. I don't feel like buying this property. Yep. And if you're in that, you can terminate. Okay. Yep. In some markets, guys, keep in mind, in some states, it has to be related to the inspection. In Texas, you can do whatever you want. So when you never, ever do exactly whatever you want, but... <laughs> Uh, for any reason. And so, uh, Stacey, you mentioned a small non-refundable fee associated with that. What's that? Yeah. So the option fee is what gives you that exclusive right to terminate for any reason. So, and and typically um, now with the market not being as competitive as it was, or, or not being in competition as much as we were in the past, I usually will do like $50 a day uh, for the option period. So $500 for a 10 day option period. Um, And that's, it's really kind of a um, good faith to the seller that, you know, yes, I'm committed to this property. um, So I'm putting up this money up front, but it gives me the exclusive right to terminate for any reason, you know, should I decide to do so. What What happens if you don't pay the option fee? Um, I've never actually had that happen, Kim. <laughs> <laughs> have you? Yeah, I, I have actually. Um, if you don't pay the option fee, you you're basically waiving your right to your option. Oh, okay. So it's not never like- had an option. Yeah. Oh, okay. So if you, you don't, don't pay the pay- option, you don't have it. You don't pay it. You don't have it. Okay. So there's no like autumn like inspection period in addition to the option. It's just you pay the fee and you have an option period or you don't and you've waived it. You got it. Okay. And if you waive it, do you still have the right to an inspection and you can terminate on the inspection? Is it like an as is or just truly waiving the contingency altogether? 
Yeah, it really gets gray in that area that gets and gets really, really complicated. Um, all you have to do is get burned one time and then uh, you learn really quick to make sure that that um, that buyer pays that option fee along with the earnest money. So you always want to make sure they're paying their earnest money along with the option fee. And you want to get there. You want to get that there within three business days. So I always just say, hey, we're going under contract. Let's pay the option fee tomorrow. Let's pay the earnest money tomorrow. Send that all together. That way it's it's out. And then I will actually follow up and make sure the title has got it. They've recorded it. But yeah, you can get into a situation where, you know, your only contingency left is your appraisal. And if you if you're proof for your loan. So really important to pay that option fee up front. Yeah. To protect yourself as a buyer, you just it's totally worth it because all you have to do is pay it. And then you have your 10 days to, to figure out everything else. So exactly. that's the best way to protect yourself there. All right. Option periods are typically 10 days. Is there any sort of additional negotiation period? So let's say we're in my option period and I find $5,000 worth of stuff wrong with the house. Mm-hmm. So do we have to negotiate all of that within that 10 day period? Or if I find that that thing, like if I get my inspection back on day nine and we start negotiating, how long do we have, or do we own, do we have to be done by day 10? Does that make sense? I don't feel like I asked that well. Go ahead, Stacey. Yeah. I, th- I think it makes sense. Um, so you want to get the most, you want to get your negotiation done during that option period. If you don't like if, and, and I've had this happen before where, you know, we're day nine and now we're starting to negotiate and it's going to take a little while. So we'll just extend the option period at that point to, you know, give us uh, more time and still protect the buyer's earnest money. Gotcha. So all notifications and negotiations need to be finished by the end of the option period. Okay. Listeners. So that's different about Texas than in other States. So in other States, sometimes you will at the end of the inspection period or the option period, once you you just have to have a notification of what you're going to ask for in by that date. And then the negotiations start for another few days but in Texas, all of it has to be done by the end of that option period. So definitely make sure you understand that because that'll be a really sad day if you don't remember to extend and you were asking for some concessions. Yeah, it's yeah. a really good point, Avery. One of the things that I advise my clients to do as soon as we go under contract, okay, we're going to go under contract. We want your inspection scheduled tomorrow or the next day at the latest. And we typically have inspectors that can do that. If you're coming to walk the property, which we recommend that you do, you need to get on a plane or you need to get down here and you need to plan to be here this week because we don't want to leave that to the last minute. Because once you're past that five days, 10 days, whatever that option period is, you know that that's it. So as you're writing your offer, be planful and mindful of what your schedule is to make sure that you can get everything in. Yeah. And it's never ideal to be negotiating like on the ninth day. Uh, Mm -hmm. because if you need to extend the option period, you know, then you're running up against, okay, are they going to sign it um, or not? You know, are the um, sellers going to sign and it it can get a little bit hairy. Um, So we want to avoid that and take care of that as soon as possible whenever we can. Yeah. And if you extend your option period, the seller has the right to ask for additional option money. Mm -hmm. So do they have the right to just say, no, we're not extending? Yeah, they do. Yeah. So you're not even guaranteed that you could extend. So Guys, make sure you get everything done at the beginning of the option period is the key takeaway from this little segment here. Yep. All right. So moving on from option period. Okay. So let's talk about the financing contingency. 
So is there a specific date by which you have to know that your financing is going to go through or can you just get denied on the last day before closing and still get your earnest money back? There's a specific date and that's something that we write into the contract. Um, I will usually put in 21 days, um, but sometimes we get pushback from the seller's agents um, and, and they want a shortened time frame. But uh, that's a date that we we put in there. Okay. So even so, if you put in a 21 day financing contingency and they get denied their financing on the 22nd day, do they get their earnest money back? No. 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 They do not. Yeah. You want to make sure that your buyer and your lender and your and the agent are are keeping. Uh, watch on those 21 days. 21 days is very, very typical in Texas. Sometimes we can get a little more, sometimes it's a little less, but you, you want to make sure that you have that approval in writing from that lender by that 21 day mark. Very, very important guys. And that's something else that is different in other states. There are some states where you can get denied the day of closing and you are still entitled to your earnest money back. Mm-hmm. And there are other states like Texas and Florida is another one where there's a specific date that's written into the contract that you have to have your full loan approval by. And you want to make sure that you have that by then. So ways to make sure that you have that you can meet that deadline is by making sure you're disclosing everything relevant. Even if you think it's not relevant, like an outside transaction uh, to this deal, make sure you're disclosing that to your lender. I've seen some very, very sad. I've been cussed out by buyers before who did not disclose. Like for example, they were going to use a HELOC to for their down payment, and they had several properties that they could have used. So um, they told the lender, I'm using a HELOC. He lender says, okay, cool. They get to the end and turns out they were not HELOCing one of their properties. They were trying to HELOC a family member's property that they lived in. And you can't use, that would have made it be gift funds that they were then using for their down payment. And last day, uh, two days after financing contingency, lender says, I didn't know this was, you were trying to HELOC this. You told me you were trying to HELOC something that you own. And now you're telling me that it's not, and there's nothing we can do. And we weren't able to get the seller to extend. And it was just like this whole mess. So moral of the story is make sure you disclose everything to your lender that could potentially affect the deal. Even if you think it's not going to affect the deal, any sort of financial transaction or job related or switching careers or anything needs to be disclosed to the lender at the very beginning, because the last thing you ever want is a surprise at the 11th hour that might cause you to lose your earnest money or worse. Or if you plan on making a large purchase like a car or something, let the lender know beforehand because that may impact your ability to close. Yeah, I've had people that have been furnishing STRs before and they go and they buy, they open up a credit card, you know, at the furniture store. So, and then the lender finds it and then, uh uh-oh, they have to go back through underwriting again. So- you know, any type of financing that you're not even thinking about just opening up the store card that that could impact your underwriting. Yes. So don't finance furniture. Don't buy a car. Don't switch jobs. Don't quit jobs. Don't do any of those things while you're <laughs> under contract to buy a house. Um, all right. So I think we've hit on that enough. So appraisal, is this a separate contingency or is the appraisal kind of part of the financing contingency? It's part of the financing contingency. 
Okay. So the appraisal would need to have come in and any potential negotiations be done before that financing contingency date. Kim, correct me if I'm wrong. Yes. It's a little bit of a gray area too. So the ultimate answer to your question is yes. Um, however, what we see typically is sometimes that it might get extended now, not so much these days because the, the market's a little bit slower. Now we can get appraisers out there pretty quick. So it doesn't take as long as it used to. Um, but a couple of years ago, you know, appraisers were really backed up. And so we saw some extensions um, based on appraisals and continuing that uh, appraisal contingency. You always want to get your appraisal done up front when you're talking to your lender. You should be talking to your lender, I say, every day making sure that they're continuing your application and making sure that they're working on it. They're making progress, but you should ask when that appraisal is scheduled. And so you should have that date marked on your calendar. I'm going to have that date marked on my calendar. And then we're going to be watching for those um, results to come in. So just to make sure that we we don't have any earnest money at risk. And if the appraisal comes in lower than the contract price, what are my options? At that point, then we kind of go back to the negotiating table and, um, you know, let the seller's agent know where we are. Um, so there's two options, basically, that either the buyer, if they really want the property, they can cover that. Well, there's probably three options. They can cover that difference if they still think the numbers make sense for them. Um, the seller can lower the price to meet the appraisal amount, or we can meet somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we can meet somewhere in the middle seller, ideally as a buyer and buyer's agent, the seller would come down to the appraised value or the worst option for a buyer is the seller won't budge at all. And they want you to pay the entire difference in cash. Now we saw a lot of that back in 2021 and 2022, not as much anymore because back then there were 20 buyers waiting for every single property. So it was easy to resell. There was always somebody who would do it. Whereas now sellers have to come down some. They and so not all of them are down here in reality with the rest of us yet. Some of them still think that uh, they are going to get the appraisal gap, and maybe they will, but uh, it's not as necessary or seen really as much at all as it was back then. Um, so one thing that I have seen people get a little in a wad about in the past is if they get an appraisal that they don't like. And sometimes I've seen people get pissed off that that it appraised $25,000 high because they wanted it to come in low and try to make the seller come down more. And so they want a new appraisal. And the only way to get a new appraisal, guys, so unfortunately we can't just go back to the lender and say, I'm not happy with this appraisal. Let's order another one. There's all kinds of regulations in place now since 2008 so that lenders, agents, buyers, sellers, nobody can influence an appraiser. And so we can't, each lender gets one appraisal. They're not allowed to go back and say, hey, actually, we don't like this. Can we get another one? The only way to get a new appraisal would be to start the entire lending process over with a different lender so that then you'll get a new appraiser. Um, And I mean, at the end of the day, an appraisal is still just one person's analysis of what a property is worth. So I've seen it happen where, you know, one appraiser was having a bad day or, or maybe I don't know what the reason was, but they appraised it 20 low. I've seen a buyer go back with a different lender, get a new appraisal, new appraiser, and it comes back at value. Um, So it can go a number of different ways, but just know it's not as easy as saying, hey, I don't like this appraisal. Can I get another one to get a new one? Yeah. Yeah. I ran into that just recently where the appraisal came in 10,000 low um, and 
we didn't necessarily, we didn't agree with it at all. Um, we didn't think the comps, um, we thought there were better comps that he could have used and, but it was a matter of, okay, do we start all over at this point? Um, the seller wasn't willing to budge because they also vehemently disagreed with the appraisal um, and, and had had another appraisal that had fallen out of a, a contract they had had on the property that was like 20 over. So you're right. It can, you know, it can um, vary depending on the appraisal or appraiser. All right. So again, but kind of similar to the financing contingency, you're just making sure lender has everything they need, including getting what they need to order the appraisal very, very early in the contract process. Yep. All right. So now we've gotten through our appraisal and we're to the closing table or getting pretty close to that. So final walkthrough. Who can do that in Texas and what are the what, what's usual? So typically we will offer the buyers to do a final walkthrough. Um we cannot do that on their behalf, but we can certainly you know, let them in and and let them go in and inspect um, themselves. So it's it's up to them if they want to come in to do the final walkthrough or if they wanted to send their inspector back out to do a final walkthrough, that's fine as well. That's an option. Okay. So there's two people who can do a final walkthrough, the buyer themselves or the inspector who did the original inspection and reasons for that. So I'll, I've told this story on a number of platforms. So I apologize for anybody who's listening, who's like, I'm really tired of this story. Get a new story about this. So um, agents are not allowed to do final walkthroughs or they shouldn't. There are probably some out there that do, but they don't realize that they shouldn't, myself included when I was newer. So I've there have been a couple of times, really one that stands out uh, that I did a final walkthrough for a buyer. They had gotten their inspection. They didn't ask for any repairs to be done. They asked just for some money off. So we weren't looking for any repairs to be done. But that's one reason why agents can't do final walkthroughs because it's outside an agent's scope to be able to say, this needs to be repaired. That needs to be repaired. This was repaired incorrectly. We're not licensed contractors. We're not licensed home inspectors. We are but lowly real estate agents, and we cannot do those things. Uh, but what happened to me was there wasn't anything to check for, uh, but I did the inspection, did a little video walkthrough, not the inspection, sorry, bad wording, did the final walkthrough, did a little video walkthrough, sent it to the client, client was happy, client closes, two or three weeks later, he's in his cabin and there's some squishy floor around the toilet. And who does he come after? Me, because I didn't catch it in the final walkthrough. So that's why I, I mean, I think it's just too much liability. I think you need to have that. I mean, that's, that was my fault for doing it, but he, he hired someone who doesn't have the right experience to know, like, no, I didn't go check the wax ring in the toilet. I don't even know what a wax ring is. So, um, and that's ended up being the problem that the wax ring was loose and leaking and the inspector hadn't caught it and neither did I, but again, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what a wax ring is. I did not sit on the toilet to know that it was squishy around it. So my bad uh, in terms of, you know, giving the impression that I was the person for that job. So that's why it needs to be you as a buyer, or it needs to be that home inspector who's licensed, who knows to look for these things, who knows the things to check. And they know the things that were there on the previous inspection that they did during the inspection period. So they can tell you if anything has changed. Another one that I've seen is uh, when an agent will go just do a quick final walkthrough and there will be like 
a piece of art or a small furniture item that they didn't know was swapped out from the beginning or maybe removed that happened to be really important to the buyer, but the agent didn't know that. They didn't even notice it wasn't there. They just walked in, did the video and said, oh yeah, it looks the same. We're good. So anyway, needs to be you as a buyer or it needs to be your home inspector for all of the reasons that I just listed. And uh, is the final inspection or walkthrough in Texas, an opportunity to renegotiate the contract? No, not really. Um, because at that point, it, typically that final walkthrough is happening either the day of closing or the day before closing. So you're not going to want to negotiate anything at that point. Now, if something's missing that was supposed to be there, then then that's definitely a conversation we need to be having and um, getting that straightened out. But you're not going to negotiate anything new at that point. Right. So the final walkthrough is used to make sure that the property is in the same or better condition than it was when you got under contract and that everything that was is supposed to be there is there. But what I've seen in the past is buyers who will like send out another inspector and say, find everything you can that maybe wasn't on the first one and try to use it again as like a last ditch effort to get more money off. And that's not typically the contracts don't provide for that. They mm -hmm. just uh, mm -hmm. specify that if things aren't the way they were, then we use this time to, like Kim said, straighten that out. It's not a time to like look for new things and try to say it's not worth what it was, you know, 30 days ago or any a number of like really cute tricks. Uh, it's solely for saying, okay, yep, this is the same as it was. We're ready to move forward. Now, once you get past your option period, once you get past your financing contingencies and the appraisal, I mean, you should be ready to close on the property. There should be no last minute tricks, no last minute gotchas. I mean, you're going forward with the property. If you don't, your earnest money is at risk. Because even if you do find something, the seller can say, well, you didn't say anything about that before. That didn't seem to be a problem before. And they can say, we still expect you to go through the contract. And if you default on the contract, um, seller gets your earnest money. You're locked in at that point. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about the actual physical act of coming into town and close and stay in the property. So uh, in Texas, do they typically give the keys at the time of signing the closing documents or at the time that of funding? So when the funds are in either the title company or the seller's account. Okay, so it should be. No, say what you're going to say, Kim. <laughs> so 99.999% of my buyers close remotely. It's very, very rare that we have people closing in person. Um, just because the majority of our buyers are out of state, out of town. Um, and so it really depends on the seller. Um, some sellers are okay just turning over the keys to title and saying, hey, just you know, ship the keys or give them to the agent and I'll ship the keys. Um, other sellers are, uh, they want to see the funding actually hit the bank before that they will turn over the keys. So, yeah, yeah, I would say don't count on it till funding. Um, sometimes you may get it at closing if that's the day before. Um, but funding, I would say it would be your safe bet. And you may not always get keys. Um, you know, if this property has remote or smart locks and mm -hmm. it's been with a property manager, I've had times when like there have been no keys turned over. Um, and you know, you just get a code to the front door and sometimes you have to replace the locks on the internal owner's closet because nobody knows where the keys are. Yeah. Yeah. So typically they'll either ship the keys or leave them like in the property and you use a code to get in. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I always try to steer people away from driving into town for closing and then expecting to stay in the property that night because there's just so many things that can pop up and happen to keep you from doing that. And I've seen people with trucks full of furniture be stuck and not able to go to the property. So my recommendation is always to close remotely and then come into town after a few days when you know everything's closed and you're not going to get stuck, or at least just come into town with the expectation of hey, I may have to stay in a hotel for a night or two if anything crazy pops up. If you're going to do your own final walkthrough, then maybe do it that way. All right. So um, let's talk about a few things that might be specifically negotiated uh, on the contract in in terms of short-term rentals. So what is there anything that's typical that is done when there are future bookings on the books that are after closing? I, I wouldn't say there's typical. Um, so oftentimes there are future bookings um, on the books. It's a pain in the neck to try to transfer those um, over. And, you know, like we talk about a lot at the short-term shop, you talk about it a lot. We don't necessarily recommend taking those bookings just because most people are not optimizing their pricing and, you know, occupancy. They've not done uh, necessarily the job that our new buyers are going to do as far as managing it. Um, so there's not a standard process. It, it I have had people successfully transfer bookings, but it is a pain in the neck uh, because you have to manually transfer those bookings from one, you know, from one Airbnb account to the other Um it's not an easy process. Yeah. And by manually transfer, you mean the first person who the seller of the property has to cancel all their bookings and say, here's the link to the new one. And they have to come over and book. I always say, if you don't have to, so some States require you to honor the bookings for a certain amount of time, but if you don't have to try your best not to now don't go terminate a slam and deal because Avery said, don't Mm -hmm. take bookings. That's not what I said. If you can help it, don't. But if it's a good deal, sometimes you have to do some things you don't want to do to get the deal, which would be taking the booking. So you have to decide if that's worth it or not. But if you can get away with not taking them, I always recommend not taking them. Yeah. Yeah. You're not required to take the bookings in Texas. Awesome. Yeah. And in a beach market, sometimes we have buyers who come in that don't have enough time to get going. And so sometimes it's to their advantage to take the bookings, even though it's a complete pain in the neck, but they not be may they may not be able to get up and running quick enough mm-hmm. to get those bookings replicated with better pricing. So sometimes it's to their advantage to take the bookings if we're in a high season, so they don't miss the revenue. But yeah, if there's any way you can not take them, then completely agree. Don't do it. Yeah, totally agree with that. Um, and I do agree that in a more seasonal market, sometimes it might behoove you to take them, but we'll, we'll hit on that when we get to the Galveston full on series, um, in a month or two, uh, anything else related to the contract process that we haven't covered that you feel like our listeners will benefit from hearing? Um, the only thing, and I think this is pretty standard in most markets, you know, if you're buying a property that is turnkey or fully furnished, um, then we'll have the non-realty items addenda that specifies, you know, that everything's conveying with the property. Um, But I think that's a pretty standard form in most of our markets. Oh, right, right. We didn't cover that. So furniture. Do most properties come furnished or is that not super typical in this market yet? It depends. Um, So in Fredericksburg, I would say probably 70% of the properties are going to be furnished. 
Uh, Canyon Lake is probably more like 50%. And then the other markets, it's they're most likely not going to be furnished. Um, so it depends on if it was already a short-term rental. Um, okay. Yeah. Well, how is furniture typically negotiated uh, as far as price is concerned? So oftentimes if it's already an STR, then the furniture will be part of the deal. Um, oftentimes, not always. And, and if it's not, then, you know, we would try to negotiate that into whatever purchase price we're getting, um, you know, try to get them to throw the furniture in uh, and then negotiate from there. You know, if they, if there's things that they absolutely don't want to part with, or they feel like there's a higher dollar value than what we're offering, then we can negotiate it um, if it's worth it to the buyers. Okay. So typically it'll just come with it as is for no extra quote yeah. price, uh, but sometimes they might want to negotiate something outside of the purchase price. So something I want to shine a light on here is that if it doesn't come just extra and as is, you're going to probably have to do an outside bill of sale for the furniture. Like if you're paying 10000 for the furniture, we can't put that on the real estate contract if it's being financed because uh, the property is appraised and the lender can only lend on the value of the real estate, not the personal property, which furniture is personal property. So in some states, they'll have a little spot on the contract that says it's coming fully furnished, but the furniture has no value uh, in terms of the contract. And then in other states, you have to do that outside bill of sale that says you're getting it for $1 or $0 or uh, X amount of dollars. So to me, like I'm not the seller. So don't, again, don't like come yell at me one day when a seller wants money from you for their furniture, like your furniture, it's, is it's been in a short-term rental for X amount of years. Yeah. You might've paid X amount for it, but it's not worth that. People have been sitting on this couch, farting on it for two years. It's not <laughs> worth what you paid for it or even half. So I, I hate the whole negotiate furniture thing. Um, and for me, it's like, if it, you should actually be paying me if you want me to come get all this furniture out because I don't live there and, it's, and that's yeah. a gigantic pain. So I don't know why people feel like people want to pay them for their farted on furniture, pre-farted furniture. So anyway, <laughs> that's that's my take on that. But you know, you got to do. You're not negotiating with me. You're negotiating with a seller. So people get super emotional about their furniture. I've had more, you know, more conflict over, you know, like a single piece of furniture than anything. People get super emotional about it. So it's always yeah. furniture and art. Like yeah. people get really attached to the art on the walls. Yeah. yeah. Yet another thing I've been nearly cussed out over is one time we got to closing and somebody took the art. It was like a circular piece of art. It was all these sticks glued together and the seller took it and the buyer flipped out. I didn't even notice it was there. And uh, he came in town and did his own final walkthrough. And he was like, I really wanted that. And I'm like, oh, and so I go back to the listing agent. And we're like, hey, he really wanted this. And they said, well, it's very sentimental value to the seller and they're not going to, they're not going to do it. And he was like, well, I'm not going to buy it. And I was like, can I buy you some new stick art? Do you want me to buy you new stick art? And he would not know it had to be that stick art. Those sticks were very significant to the value of the property. And so we eventually got the sticks back and um, eventually he got his license and started competing with me. That one. <laughs> oh, anyway. One thing I do want to mention, this is not necessarily 
contractual, but in Texas, it is not standard for the refrigerator to convey with the property. Oh, good <laughs> so, to know. Good to know. Yeah. So I always write that into the contract um, that the furn- that the refrigerator will convey. Um, yeah, I mean, you should probably do that with all appliances because my very first purchase before I was licensed, our agent put all appliances, but they didn't specify each individual one and they took the washer and dryer and I didn't have any money at the time to go buy a washer and dryer for this thing and we couldn't get it back. So sometimes washer and dryer is not necessarily included in the term yeah. appliances. So it's best if you just list them all out to make sure that you get Yes. Them. Yeah. Washer and dryer do not automatically convey um, either or refrigerator. The stove does, but not, not the other ones. So we write those okay. in. I've got a little blurb that I put in my contracts that I, I just copy paste and it literally lists everything down to the napkins and the silverware that's in the kitchen, just because I, I don't want it to be, you know, I, I don't want anyone to assume anything. I want it to be clear and in writing. So yeah. that's what I advise. All right. Anything else? Any other points we want to make before we go? No, I think we covered everything. Okay. Awesome. Well, guys, if you want to buy a house in the Texas Hill Country with Stacy, like I plan to soon... Uh, you can email us at agents at the shorttermshop.com. Or if you just kind of want to join the discussion, you have some more questions. There's a few ways you can get some answers. One, you can join our Facebook group called Short-Term Rental, Long-Term Wealth, same as my book. Or you can come every Thursday. We have a live Zoom Q&A session. We call it our office hours. And you can sign up for that at strquestions.com. Thanks, guys. <laughs>